Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into this very rich subject matter that we are exploring in the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 6, and we will continue in chapter 6, but I wanted to first just continue to thank all of you who are taking time out of your busy schedules. I know I say this from one week to the next, and that, and that it means a lot to me, but it really does mean a lot to me that you, in the midst of all your busyness, okay, are taking time out of that busyness to reflect with me into the book of Revelation. Now, I know a number of you have been with me for the past, uh, what, nine, ten years. We started this Catholic radio programming as the Catholic Hour almost 10 years ago now. That's incredible to think about. Almost 10 years ago, we started this program on Saturday morning, and a couple years ago, we started the daily programming. We bring it to you now in the form of Seeds of Truth. And so I really do want to extend a thank you to all of you who take time out of your busy schedules, especially those who are tuning in by way of podcast um, all across the world. It just means a lot to me. And, you know, someone had called me last week and said, does the fact that you have people listening um, outside this area encourage you to prepare more? Um, on one hand, yes, and, and on the other, no. Yes, because when you know that there are people outside of your immediate circle that are listening, you certainly feel a sense of responsibility. And no, because in the end, whether I'm talking to 10 people or 500 people or how many of our listeners out there, the bottom line is God puts onto my heart the things that we are made to talk about, and so we talk about them, right? And hopefully that is all of our approach each and every day with everything that we do. If God is calling you to it, then do it the right way. And are we always the best at it? No, we fall. We are human. I fall. I am human. <clears throat> but in my formed conscience, God lets me know that I need to make sure that I am doing what, what he is asking me to do to, to the best of my ability. So that is very important for all of us really, and so hopefully we are encouraging one another in that way in our daily walk. All right, all of that being said, I do want to go back to chapter 6. Now, I felt like we kind of just did too much of a broad stroke with chapter 6. We were kind of getting into the last third of chapter 6, and I want to rewind a little bit and get back even into those initial verses of chapter 6. Now, by the end of this evening, I do think we will be able to get through all of chapter 6, but I want to reflect more with some things that we touched upon last week. Now, as it relates to these four horsemen, we read about the four horsemen in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Unlike some later judgments in the book of Revelation that we read about in chapter 9, verse 4, and chapter 19, verse 19 and following, nothing in the visions of the four horsemen suggests that the calamities of war, economic difficulty, famine, plague, and death will not afflict God's people. Sin and its consequences have infected our world. Even though God's people have been redeemed, we are not immune from sin's effects while the world lasts and, and we remain in our bodies. This is so important for us 
If this seems grim to you, it helps to recall that the Son of God became one of us, right? He became one of us and shared in human suffering to the point of undergoing crucifixion in order to deliver us completely from suffering and death someday. And I emphasize crucifixion because if you are a faithful listener, you know the importance of that word, ex cruces, from the cross. Each and every time you say something is excruciating, I want you to start from this point on to start thinking about how this comes from the cross and how you are called to conform your suffering to the cross, unite your suffering to the cross, because he understands. He understands. I may not fully understand. Your friend may not fully understand. That person close to you might not fully understand. But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ understands. He passed through death for a reason. To ransom us from our sin, of course. But also to remind us that there will never be a day where we can say no one understands. Because he understands. He knows what excruciating is all about. I know this is a hard truth. It's, it's hard for me sometimes. But this is a key element to Christianity. And we need to uh, enter into this truth for what it is. So, this someday that I just mentioned, that day, according to Revelation, is not far off. Even now, the Lord is near to all who suffer and invites all to call upon him, right? So, how then, in the light of what we are talking about, should God's people respond when calamity strikes? Our first thought needs to be for those around us who may need our physical or spiritual help. Before we started this special series on the book of Revelation, on Wednesday evenings, I spent about, oh, up to three months talking about mercy and several weeks talking about the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Well, this is what I'm talking about now, the importance of that overarching truth regarding mercy, that love is mercy when it sees another person suffering and is so gripped by it that they do something about it. I mean, is not Scripture full of exhortations to share bread with the hungry, to help widows and orphans in their affliction, and to show mercy in every way possible? Times of great trial give many opportunities to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. Is this not 1 Peter 3.15? As regards to ourselves, how about Hebrews 12? Hebrews 12 encourages Christians to do what? But accept hardships and difficulties. Even those suffered because of our resistance to evil. As God's fatherly training, we might come to understand the significance of the author's words in the letter to the Hebrews. Take heed to chapter 12, verse 5 to 7. My son, do not disdain the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son he acknowledges. Endure your trials as discipline. God treats you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Are those not some beautiful yet challenging words? The letter of James takes us one step further. 
Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Perseverance. You know, on more than one occasion, I've been asked, why do bad things happen to good people? Because, my dear friends, sometimes, if not all the times, that bad just might be God's mercy. What do I mean? Well, look at the cross. Look at Jesus on the cross. The worst day in human history became Good Friday. How? Why? Well, because the Son of God chose to undergo this excruciating affliction to ransom us from our sin. And why? Because He loves us. And so we are called to imitate this love with a deeper understanding (laughs) that God is chastening us. He is disciplining us. Why? Because He calls us disciples. Because He calls us sons and daughters of God, and He calls us to discipleship. Remember that the word discipline and discipleship, in effect, are the same thing. They come from the same Latin root word, which best translates as to come to understand. We come to understand God's way of doing things when we are disciplined in our walk, right? And what's the natural, or maybe we should say supernatural outgrowth of that? Well, we become disciples of Christ. The third word that should be attached to this discussion, discipline and disciple, is what? Discern. Discern, because the word discernment means to come to understand. So there's this kind of Trinitarian connection between those three words that are bound and caught up with one another within this larger context of being a son or daughter of God who embraces their sonship and in doing so recognizes their call to become a disciple and to imitate God's love in both word and deed. All right, that being said, verses 9 to 11, another series of verses that I just wanted to talk a little bit more about, and I'll go ahead and read those now. When he broke open the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the witness they bore to the word of God. They cried out in a loud voice, How long will it be, holy and true master, before you sit in judgment and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? Each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to be patient a little while longer until the number was filled of their fellow servants and brothers who were going to be killed as they had been. Now, the vision that accompanies the fifth seal clearly does not fit the expectation of those who interpret the opening of each seal as marking a distinct historical event. Rather than describing a particular historical moment, this vision sums up the situation of the Christian martyrs throughout all of history in this brief symbolic narrative and certainly As we've talked about, this is a common literary feature of Revelation. At the opening of the fifth seal, the prophet witnesses what? A peculiar exchange between the martyrs and Christ or God. John sees those who had been slaughtered. The same word used to describe the lamb. Remember what we talked about in chapter 5, verse 6. The reason for their deaths is explained because of the witness they bore to the word of God, right? That is, they were killed for testifying to the gospel. Now, I should not take for granted 
that maybe you are listening to this radio program for the first time. Here, the word translated witness in the Greek is martyria, the ordinary word for legal testimony, right? In early Christianity, it acquired the meaning of what we've talked about so much, martyrdom. And although there is no evidence to indicate that there were many martyrs in Asia by the time Revelation was written, certainly John's readers would have known of the killing of Christians in Rome, in Jerusalem, and elsewhere. Now, I've been asked a question that I wanted to respond to here, and the question is in regards to, within the Catholic tradition, we have relics in the altars. And I thought it'd be good to talk about this here because it certainly fits the sequence of our thought, huh? In Catholic, Orthodox, and other ancient churches, the Mass or Divine Liturgy is celebrated over the relics of one or more canonized martyrs, as well as the relics of, of certain saints, of course, pending devotion and, and, and patrons, if you will. In the altars of the churches of the Roman Rite, relics are kept in what is called an altar cavity, or in the Latin, sepulchrum, right? Orthodox and Byzantine Catholic priests celebrate the Divine Liturgy upon a silk cloth called an antimension, which depicts the burial of Christ and into which relics of martyrs and saints have been sewn. So not only do we have the relics of martyrs and saints in the altar cavity, but even the silk cloth. I love that. I think that's beautiful. So the practice of celebrating Mass over the tombs of the martyrs began as early as the third century. Now there is one particular scholar that I'm looking down at, and this is recorded in the book of Revelation, Peter Williamson, uh, his name's Lonertz. He says, by the fourth century, when the Eucharistic tables began to be erected over the tombs of the martyrs, the Christian people were so inclined towards this association of the sacrifice of Christ with the relics of the martyrs that they unwittingly established the custom as a general rule, thus realizing to the letter St. John's vision. In the churches which have not deliberately broken with tradition, every Eucharistic table is still a martyr's or confessor's tomb. The martyrs are spiritually under the altar. I love that. Now, what else could we say about these verses? Well, God responds to the martyrs in a manner that at first seems at least a little curious. <laughs> Each person was given a white robe. Now, the Greek word for robe is what? Stole, where we get the word stole. It indicates a, a long garment worn by a person of rank. In the Septuagint, it is often used to describe the apparel of priests and occasionally of angels. The white color connotes, as we talked about before, the victory of holiness, which is acquired by way of purity, huh? which is acquired by way of purity. <clears throat> now, there's something else interesting here, because John says this, each martyr was told to be patient. Now, the Greek word for patient is actually to wait, rest, or even to be refreshed. And in this case, what does John say? A little while longer. So they are to wait until the number of their fellow martyrs is filled. And this is a biblical way, if you will, of saying that the answer to their prayer for justice essentially awaits the completion of God's plan, which, of course, foresees the martyrdom of other fellow servants and brothers, fellow Christians like themselves. 
In other words, the martyrs will be vindicated. The scales of justice, we could say, will be balanced, but not until history itself reaches its goal. So for the church, the present time is a time of what then? Testimony and enduring suffering. The martyrs walking in the steps of the Lamb who also bear witness, right? Conforming ourselves to Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, what did this passage just say? God honors and refreshes them in his presence. In their deaths, martyrs have been conformed to Christ whose desire is for mercy and the conversion of sinners. And to God who takes, what does Ezekiel chapter 33 say? Verse 11, the God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live, live in his love, live in his mercy, live in his joy. Is this not what we are to look towards? Okay, so I wanted to make sure that we added on to our previous reflections in relationship to those verses because I just thought, well, there was still more to be said there. Okay, how about this sixth seal, more or less where we left off last time, the wrath of the Lamb. This is chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the generals and the rich and the strong and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand before it? Okay, so as we saw all the way back in chapter two, since the sun, moon, and stars were the way the ancients told time. The image of destruction, then, is another way of telling Jerusalem what? Your time is up. Your time is up. In a similar way, the image of the barren fig tree was used by Jesus as a symbol for the fruitlessness of Jerusalem, ripe for judgment. In fact, the wording of this passage is taken almost verbatim from Isaiah 34, where Edom is told of God's coming judgment. If you were to turn to Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4, what do we read? The host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. The message is this, my friends. I know we've touched upon this before, but if we're going to understand what the book of Revelation is all about, these review points are so key. Jerusalem is about to experience the same judgment God leveled against the enemies of his people in the past because Jerusalem has become like them. Why this usage of mountains and islands? Well, they were places of refuge during troubled times. In saying that these places will be removed, what is John saying? What is John trying to communicate? John is telling his audience that there will be no place left to hide. Therefore, those who hide in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains will also be judged, right? 
The wording here also recalls our Lord's warning to the woman who stood by weeping for him as he carried his cross. What does Luke record there in chapter 23, verses 28 to 31? If you have your Bibles out there, flip to Luke 23, verses 28 to 31. What do we read there? So important. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never gave suck. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And certainly the reference to the green wood is best understood as a warning that the wickedness of the Jewish leaders who killed him is nothing compared to the evil state of Jerusalem at the time of the destruction in the year 70 AD, a point that we have been trying to hammer home. Okay, what can we say by way of closing reflections here? Well, first of all, we ought to continue to appreciate the importance of the grandeur of liturgy, right? That in the Mass, heaven itself touches down to earth. That we participate in the very same heavenly liturgy that the angels and saints celebrate. So maybe here we ought to start thinking about something. Who is your patron saint, huh? Who is your confirmation saint? Is it St. Francis of Assisi? Is it St. Patrick? Is it St. Therese? Is it St. John Paul II? Is it St. Joseph? Whoever your saint is, next time you go to Mass, envision that that saint is sitting next to you. That's the power of the Mass. What does this also mean? Well, <laughs> no matter how bland or off-key uh, the singing is, when we sing, holy, 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 we are joining in the heavenly chorus. No matter how boring the homily is, Christ truly does come to speak to us. And no matter how much this or that bothers you, understand that there is a reason why St. Thomas Aquinas put such an emphasis on disposition in relationship to Mass. One of the great Thomistic principles is that God is received according to the mode of the recipient. That is to say that God is received to the extent that one is disposed to receive God, huh? So if we are spending so much time preoccupied with all of these material things, then the question that you have to ask is, what of these things is taken away from my time with God that is not allowing me to be more disposed to receive God? Have you ever gone to Mass or, or even maybe a, a service of your denomination and 15, 20, 25 minutes in, you realize that you didn't hear a single thing <laughs> that the pastor was talking about, but you were so preoccupied in either what happened the night before or what you still need to do Sunday afternoon that, you know what, you just didn't enter into it? These are practical questions we need to start asking ourselves. And that question here and now is, what is that thing Saturday afternoon or Saturday night or thing Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening that I'm so preoccupied with that it's taken away from my time with God? How can I change this? Because 
Let me tell you something. That time you have with God, especially on Sunday, is so important to your spiritual life. That is your going out on a date with God. I mean, how many dates go well when you're preoccupied with something other than the person you are present to, your beloved, your spouse, your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever? Well, I'm sure they don't go over very well, right? In a more than similar way, my friends, when we are preoccupied, it doesn't go over well. We will not receive the grace that we need to receive. And chaos and disorder will begin to follow our lives. By just way of postscript to this evening, I want all of us to start thinking about the last things. If there's anything that the book of Revelation encourages, it is for us to start thinking about the last things. You know, Christian tradition has long held that meditating on the last things, that is death, judgment, heaven, and hell, right? And our ultimate future can help us approach our lives wisely, huh? Wisely. And one simple way of doing this is to, well, spend time with the book of Revelation. And if you're a Catholic, to go back to the catechism and spend time with the four last things. Hopefully, by the grace of God, it will really encourage you to start living with the end in mind. Maybe it includes being less critical about people and things we can't control and more loving to the people and situations that are before us. Okay, very good. We are out of time. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, hopes, observations, whatever you might uh, have, please do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com or you can always go to my website, joholcraft.org, hit the contact link button there. And uh, yeah, just send your message on its way. I really do enjoy your questions. And as I go through this book, I know I've been able to answer some of your questions. If there is a burning question that you're not getting answered and that you really want answered, as I've talked about in the past, please just send it my way and I will make a point to answer that. Okay, with that, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of this evening the gift of being able to reflect with the richness of your word as it comes to us through the book of Revelation, this most beautiful book that ought to get us excited about our Christian and Catholic faith to live a more dynamic Christian Catholic life, and also a book that ought to encourage a deeper reflection and meditation on the last things. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.